Let's open with number 294. 294. Ah, Lord, enlarge our scanty thought to know the wonders Thou hast wrought. Unloose our stammering tongues to tell Thy love immense, unsearchable. Oh, come, Thou stricken Lamb of Turn first, if you would please, to Psalm 119. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Don't know exactly how to express it, but my 
desire is this afternoon, but it would be that I could pass on some things that would uh, have been a help to me, and I trust it be a help to you. Uh, some specific scriptures and then some larger themes that would cause us, I trust, to gain an appreciation or a further appreciation for the Word of God, the scriptures. And I trust, too, to make a few comments that might help us in our understanding of this blessed book. When uh, we were first married, we, the Hemet Assembly at that time was in the Winchester Assembly, and we met in a refurbished garage, and there was it was like a retirement home for some of the older ones, and there was an aged brother that lived right against the, uh, the, the, the garage or the meeting hall, like Justice of Old, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. The brother could open the door and walk right into the meeting room. However, what struck me is when you went in the front door of that brother's house, there was a text that immediately faced you. I've never seen it before or since. And this text was the last half of this 161st verse. My heart standeth in awe of thy word. And knowing that brother, it was a reality with him. He loved the scriptures. He valued the scriptures. He respected the scriptures. So three brief points in these verses. That is good for young and old. It's interesting here how the psalmist It really gives us insight even to the path of the Lord Jesus here, who loved the Word of God. Thy law is within my heart. Looks on to a coming day when the the new covenant will be written on the hearts of the Jewish people, the Jewish remnant. And it gives gives us a language. Part of it is love for the Word of God. Well, here it says, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of them. No, my heart standeth in awe of thy word. been said that by using the same word, we don't all mean the same thing, which is true. But also we find that occasionally a word is used to describe something, but it really overstates it. For instance, I might say, I had a piece of cheesecake that was simply awesome. But it really wasn't. It was delectable. It was mouth-watering, perhaps, but it wasn't awesome. Standing in awe would be the suggestion in the presence of here the Scriptures of our God to be overwhelmed with a sense of His majesty, His greatness, and His glory. This is what standing in awe is. To come before the Word of God, this is, it is the Word of God living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so I just bring this verse out at the beginning that there is Holy reverence for this book. There is no book like this. This is the Word of God. Just recently, again, I I picked up, not Miller's Church History, that's pretty cumbersome. It's it's, it's thick and good. But there's a little church history book by Price. G.H.S. Price, I think it is. But anyway, I I read it because it gives you a quick snapshot of church history in very few pages. I encourage you to read it. It gives you a quick overview. But what I was impressed with it again is these men like William Tyndale that sacrificed and gave their life in order that we might have copies of the Scripture in our own language. What a treasure it is to have the Word of God. Men and women that have laid down their life and sacrificed their life really as martyrs, that we can read casually the the blessed, precious Word of God. Well, the first thing the psalmist was this, his heart stood in awe of the Word, that the Word of God that would have a commanding influence in our life. It says in Isaiah 66, To this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word. This is no common book. This is the word of the living God. So we need to stand in awe of it. But more than that, verse 162, I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be in the presence of somebody who is enthused, in reading the Scriptures. This is no dry, tedious book. This is filled with riches. This is a delight. You may have heard the anecdote. I was told by a friend of mine when I was younger about a younger brother that went to an older brother and said, this book is dry. He says, then try wetting it with a few beads of sweat. You know, we understand it requires labor. And of course, I've heard a variation of that as well, which is perhaps more to the point. 
try wetting it with a few tears. There's brethren that have given their life, as we say, to have a copy of the Word of God. But it's not dry and tedious. If I'm out of communion, it is. But if I'm walking with the Lord, the psalmist says, I rejoice at thy word of one that findeth great spoil. Go back to uh, verse... See if I can find it here. Yeah, 72 of the same psalm. The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. I don't have it here because uh, I have a parallel Bible, but in the King James, I think you noticed on the introduction to it, 1611, how they spoke of this book as an inestimable treasure. And so it is. The Word of God. It says here, The law of thy mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Just a couple points here. Why doesn't it just say, Thy law is better than thousands of gold and silver? But it's better unto me. It's true, it's better than gold and silver. Thousands of gold and silver. But what is it to you? What is it to me? The psalm says, It's better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. But then he also says, The law of thy mouth. I need to say thy law is better than gold and silver. It's the law of thy mouth. Made me think of this this morning. It's the voice. You know, in the chapter we read this morning in the 20th John, wasn't commented on, perhaps you noticed it, that Mary came and spoke of the Lord that He had spoken these things unto her. There's things we pick up, there's things that we learn in our Christian pathway, and we value them. But... Haven't there been times when you have something because you have the sense the Lord has spoken these things unto you? Like the woman in John 4 there, she went and told the men of the city in Samaria there, come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. And what did they say to her later on in that chapter? They said, now we believe not because of thy saying, but we have heard him ourselves. We've heard him ourselves. And that's the great thing, the law of thy mouth. It's what I've heard directly from Him, what I've received directly from Him. Well, rejoicing at His Word. And now verse 163, I hate and abhorred lying, but Thy law do I love. Love for the Scriptures. Respect for the Scriptures, joy in the Scriptures, love for the Scriptures. You know, three things that mark the saints of God. They love Christ, they love His people, and they love His Word. If any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. Love for Christ a mark of a believer. And then love for, the, love for the people of God. Hereby know we pass from death into the life because we love the brethren. And here we have love for the Word of God. Well, those three things we should all have in order that, that we are going to value and benefit from the Word of God. But I want to move on to Matthew chapter 9 for a few further thoughts. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 9, and verse 11. And when the disciples saw it, that is, the Lord eating with publican sinners, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We'll just stop there. The point I want to bring out here is the, um, the men criticized, these men criticized the Lord. And who did they go to? The Lord? No, they went to his disciples. Why is he doing this? But what does the Lord say? Go and learn what that means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. He told them to go learn what a specific scripture meant. Not just to know the scripture, but to know what it meant. Now turn over to chapter 12. Verse 1. At that time Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were in hunger, and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was hungered, 
And they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath day the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if he had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, he would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. So the very thing the Lord told them to go and learn, they didn't go and learn. And he says, if you would have learned, and specifically if you would have gone and learned what I told you to learn, you would have not have condemned the guiltless. Whether it was the disciples doing nothing wrong, or ultimately when they would condemn the guiltless one, the sinless one, they condemn the guiltless. But why? It's because they didn't go and learn what the Scripture meant. We want to know what the Scripture means. But first we have to read the Scriptures. Now, that passage is in the sixth chapter of Hosea. It's not a perhaps a real, real well-known passage. But we find something else I find very interesting here with what the Lord says to the Pharisees. Now we had noticed before that when the, the Pharisees were criticizing the Lord, who did they go to? They went to his disciples. Conversely, when they're finding fault with the disciples, they go to the Lord. They don't go to the Master. When they have an issue with him, they don't go to his disciples and they have an issue with them. It just seems like there's that, that uh, insidious effort to undermine and to bring in dissension and discord. But the Lord was aware of, of their operating procedure. But what he does here in reference to what they're doing, eating corn on the Sabbath day, he says twice over, have you not read? Haven't you read what David did? Uh, when, he ate the, when he ate the showbread, it's only for the priests. And then he goes on to say about the, the, um, the priests that profane the Sabbath. Numbers 28, they have scripture for it. Now, a couple points on this. The one is, these are what we might think of as relatively obscure passages. Tucked away in 1 Samuel, tucked away in Numbers, the end of Numbers, tucked away in the prophets. But the Lord says, have you not read? In Mark, it's even stronger. Have you never read? It's almost as if the Lord would expect that we're familiar and comfortable with these passages. I worked with a Christian woman for a number of years. She was effectively a single mother raising three daughters. And uh, she had she'd been saved uh, later in life, but she wanted to raise her, her uh, girls for the Lord. And she did. Um, she wanted to get good exposition teaching, really teach, get teaching. At any rate, she seemed to have a desire for the Word of God. And one day an issue came up at work where... Uh, there was an issue between her and, and the, the boss and spoke about having a right attitude. And so I just referenced in passing the story, which I suppose most of us are familiar in the story, in this room are familiar with the story, about uh, Naaman's little maid. And said to her, her uh, Naaman's wife, oh, that would to God that Naaman was with the prophet in Israel, for he would heal him of his leprosy. My only point in bringing that portion before her was what a beautiful attitude she had towards her boss who arguably her parents may have been slain by the man in his armies. She looked at me with kind of a blank look and I said, you don't know that story, do you? She says, no, I don't. I felt very bad. She wasn't raised in the Christian home. She wasn't raised in the story. What a wonderful work it is for those who would teach the children of God these stories that we speak of them just when we mention that everybody knows what we're talking about. But now the challenge for us is too, here the Lord refers to three other passages that are perhaps not as well known. And yet I take it from this verse, his expectation is that we would have read it. And even here we would have read it and gone and learned what it meant. One more passage in Luke chapter 9 and then we'll get on to some other things. So the importance of knowing the Word of God, reading the Word of God, and then the importance of applying the Word of God as we've learned it. 
We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 how Paul thanked God for the Thessalonian believers because what they received the word from him. They received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And then he says, which effectually worketh in you that belief. He thanked God, first of all, they received the word, but not as Paul's word. They received this what it is. It's the word of God, and that's how they received it. But more than that, it says, it effectually works in you that believe. That is, when the word of God is read, the effect is it's going to work in us. It's going to change us. It's going to, and we need to have application in our life. And that rejoiced the heart of the apostle. But Luke chapter 9, for one other point here, 52, <clears throat> verse 52, or um, verse 51, I should say. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go out to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? even as Elijah did. But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Well, here's another point for us. The disciples knew the word of God. They knew the story about Elijah calling fire down from heaven, the captain and his 53 times over. They knew the story. And something else, in addition to knowing the story, they applied it. They were ready to apply it. Well, Elijah, he brought down fire from heaven. And is that what you want us to do, Lord, too? So you can't fault him for not wanting to apply the scripture. But they didn't apply it correctly, did they? And what did they do? They compared the Lord to Elijah. Not Elisha, the prophet of grace. And the Lord just said, you know not what manner of spirit you're of. And so it is not enough to not only know the Word of God and to apply the Word of God, but we need to apply the Word of God intelligently. The disciples were not in sync. They were not in harmony with the Lord's mind, the prophet that... that um, no, he was a prophet, but he was that man of grace, like the prophet of grace, Elisha. And so how important it is that we apply the Word of God intelligently. Sometimes the expression is made, well, we need to connect the dots. Yes, we need to connect the dots, but we need to correct connect the correct dots. One doesn't go to six or to ten. It goes to two and so on. There needs to be a proper order. Well, we had a, we're familiar with the verse. I'm not going to quote it. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, to study thyself, to be approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so with the rest of the meeting, I would just like to make a few comments that I trust will be a help to us in, in rightly dividing the word of truth. And uh, in a sense, the comments are directed to those who are younger that haven't perhaps had the opportunity to hear these things before. And uh, I always hesitate to be telling my dear brethren things they already know. But um, I, I do want to pass on a few things. I'd also like to say something else is by way of encouragement. Maybe it doesn't apply up here and here at all. But... Uh, Sometimes we emphasize and stress the importance of younger ones, younger brethren, to get a hold of the Word of God, because if you don't get it when you're young, you won't have it when you're old. And that's fine, as long as we're addressing young people. But it has been to my great encouragement in our days of weakness. I can think of two assemblies close by, right where we live, is there are now older brothers, leading brothers, and their youth, they did not contribute either in priesthood or in the readings. And as they got older, the responsibility became of, of caring for the saints of God and teaching the saints of God became very real to them. And brethren, well into their 60s and past 70, getting into the Word of God and getting into the ministry with obvious growth, obvious progress in understanding the Scriptures and teaching it with profit. A brother said to me one time, he said, well, you know, I think it's the government of God why I'm just not getting on the word. I really didn't, you know, live for the Lord in my youth. It was just, you know, earthly minded and all that. And Now that I'm older, it's the government of God that hinders me from enjoying the word of God like you and some of your brothers. 
You know, that wasn't an issue at all. The issue was not past behavior. The issue was present behavior. If we get into this book with earnestness, God will, by the Spirit, open to us. We may be sorry and sad we didn't use our youth better than we did, but I believe it's the work of the enemy to shut down older brothers from enjoying the Scriptures like you wasted your youth, you blew it, you're not kidding anybody. No, the, the Spirit of God would open the Word of God to us as we get older. So I just mentioned that as an encouragement. I can say, I can think of two brothers specific. I thank God for them. They have been such a help to me. And there is a humility uh, with one. It's just remarkable. Well, we need to know the Word of God. We need to apply the Word of God. And we need to apply the Word of God intelligently. So we said about cutting the Word in a straight line in the Darby or rightly dividing the Word of Truth. Wanted to say a few words about the differences between Paul's ministry and John's ministry and Peter's ministry. But I see I have a little bit of time and what I would like to do is just very briefly go through the New Testament and just try to give a few quick thoughts on each of the books that may be a help to you, especially as you're starting out, that there might be a little bit of guidance and nudge in the right direction. So turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Now I suppose many, if not most here, know the character of the four Gospels. You have... The king in chapter 1, the servant in chapter 2, the perfect man in chapter 3, and the son of God in chapter 4. Or the four beholds. In Matthew's gospel, it's behold your king. Mark's gospel is behold my servant. Luke's gospel is behold the man. And John's gospel is behold your God. So Matthew's gospel begins the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so here in Matthew's gospel, we said behold your king, as we find through it, we have the genealogy of the Lord Jesus through Joseph, his legal father, not his biological father. God was of his father. But legally, the Lord Jesus was an heir to the throne of David because Joseph was in the royal line. It takes us back to David, the son of David, the legal heir to the throne, the son of Abraham, to one all the promises are committed. When you look at the early chapters of Matthew, you will find one Old Testament passage after another from Isaiah, from Hosea, from Jeremiah. You find all these references to the prophetic scriptures, which to the Jew would make a lot of sense. Understanding, connecting, the fulfillment of the prophecies was in this one. We find, as you come to chapter 8, his powers, the miracles, whether it's over creation, whether it's over disease, whether it's over demons, indeed, whether it's over death. He demonstrates the power uh, as, as to who he is. We have the character of his ministry in the early chapters. Now, in something in Matthew's Gospel, remember he, is the, he was the king of the Jews, but he's the rejected one. Chapter 12, he's rejected. They ascribed the works that the Lord Jesus did in the power of the Spirit of God. They saw the work of the Spirit of God in perfection before them, and they said, that's the work of the devil. That's Beelzebub. And that was a sin for no forgiveness. They, they, it could, they, they took the work of the Spirit of God and said the work of, that's the work of Satan. You know, a coming day, there's going to be the man, the Antichrist, called the man of sin. And he is going to sit in the temple of God, showing that he is God, and will be worshipped as God. Such is man's state by nature. That the man of sin is worshipped as God, and God manifest in flesh who does the Spirit, Miracles and the power of the Spirit of God, they say that's the work of the devil, how far man is from God. That's chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, we have the Lord Jesus as a sower that goes forth and sows the good seed of the kingdom, not looking for fruit from Israel anymore because he's now the sower. And so in Matthew, we have ten similitudes of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like unto. Similitude, a similarity, a likeness to it. And it describes this present day When the king, the Lord Jesus, has been rejected by his people, he's gone on high. And the kingdom is seen primarily in two ways. We have the expression in Matthew, and and these parables of the kingdom of heaven are only in Matthew, in keeping with this king that's been rejected. And it is the kingdom of heaven in mystery. Why is it in mystery? Because the the king is rejected, he's gone back to heaven, and he's not seen, and yet there is a sphere on earth that owns his authority. There is a day coming when that kingdom will be in manifestation and the Lord Jesus will come in power and glory. 
but that's not Matthew's gospel. It, the kingdom is in mystery. So that you have the Lord Jesus as the king. And as you go through it, we, we find that there are citizens. Uh, in this trouble, this is not just abstract. I remember when I was going to school, and um, Matthew 22, and I had some very zealous um, believers coming up to me, and there you are, unprofitable servant, cast into outer darkness. He's a believer. He's a servant. What am I going to do? I'm, what, 18 years of age, and here I am, someone coming to me with the word of God saying, there's a servant. It says he's a servant. You know, cast out. Well, it got me going into the ministry for one. All I could say was, all I could say was the 10th of John, my, my, sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I, I'm resting there on that. And he said, he said, well, yeah, you'll never perish, but but uh, there's outer darkness. No, we need to rightly divide the word of truth. A citizen of, is not a, uh, a son. You may be in there's a profession that may be without reality. Well, Matthew's gospel is behold your king. And so you have administrative principles in the gospel of Matthew, and that's why it's so important. Matthew 18.20, see how scripture just fits together? For where two or three are gathered together unto my name, there am I in the midst of them. What's the force of that? It's administrative authority. Right in keeping in the context with the gospel that has to do with administration. And that's where the authority is, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 5. When ye are gathered together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is the name, that is the power, that is the authority for exercising assembly action. It's his name. Not the great minds that we might think we have. No, the power is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in Mark's Gospel, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now let me just to say this. It was a help to me, and again, I'd like to pass it on to you, that the four Gospels, in Matthew, you have the Lord's birth, but you do not have His ascension. It was very important that we learn His birth because it was of the royal line, that He had a legal right to the throne of David. But you don't have His ascension, Matthew's, uh, Matthew's gospel is earthly in character. Now, in Mark's gospel, we don't have the Lord's birth, but we do have his ascension. Why is that important? Let me put it very simply this way. You don't need pedigree to serve the Lord. You say, well, my father served the Lord, and my grandfather served the Lord. That's irrelevant in a certain sense. Thank God if we've had a godly father or a godly grandfather. But the call of God to the servant... When the Lord comes here, there's no genealogy. He comes out serving from the beginning. John the Baptist serving from the beginning. And I believe it gives great liberty. The Lord can raise up whom He will, irrespective of your upbringing. And there's so many men that have been a help to me that were not raised in the assembly. They came into the truth later on, and they bought it for themselves. But in Mark's Gospel, we don't have this genealogy. The Lord serves from the beginning. And if you want a fun little exercise, those of you who are younger, is just pick a chapter out and see how many, see what the first word is of every verse in that chapter. Take any chapter you want. And you're going to see and, 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 and. The servant constantly doing something else. Constantly doing something else. And so we get at the end of Mark's Gospel, the Lord is ascended. And what is He doing? He's serving with them. Now Luke's Gospel... Not sure the best verse to reference here. But go to a chapter 4. This is the temptation. Luke chapter 4, when Jesus, full of the Holy Ghost, went into the wilderness. In verse 3, the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now in Luke, we have the Lord's birth and we have the Lord's ascension. Now, his genealogy in Luke, as we've often heard, is not through Joseph as the legal heir of the throne, but through Mary. Because Joseph and Mary were, were sons of David, one through Solomon and one through Nathan. So he was the seed of David in, in Luke's gospel. He was a perfect man. And it's in Luke that we have 
not only the birth of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ emphasized, but his conception. He is a perfect man. And as we quoted uh, this morning, how in, when they, they were, thought they'd seen a spirit there in Luke, and, and he said, handle me and see a spirit hath not flesh and bones that you see me have. He is a real, a real man. Yeah, in resurrection, flesh and bones, not flesh and blood, but he was a real man. Now what we find in Luke's Gospel, I think 14 times we find the Lord praying. Either says he's praying or we actually read his prayers. And here we have him in the wilderness, tempted of the devil, and what does he do? He references the Word of God. And in that, he's the perfect pattern for us. True, he's God. He could say, get thee behind me, Satan, or get thee hence, Satan. And properly, it's not here in Luke as it is in Matthew, as the king would dispatch him. But Luke, the point is, it's his, he, he takes the place as a dependent man. He prays, and he uses the Word of God. And so in this, it can be helped to us. Those two things we can do. We can pray, and we can read and follow the Word of God. Just another minor point that's intrigued me. When the Lord Jesus quotes Scripture to the devil, it's all from the book of Deuteronomy, 2 in chapter 6, 1 in chapter 8. They're all relatively compressed together in a a, a small uh, area of the book. Which seems I have wondered that maybe that was something that the Lord, his, his ear is open morning by morning, something that he'd read only recently. Often we found it, if we're reading the Word of God, that when a test or a challenge or a question comes up, often, if we're before the Lord, the very scriptures that we've only recently read will be of help to us. So he is that perfect man. We could, uh, we could say more, but we need to move on. And of course in John. In John, his birth is not mentioned, nor is his ascension mentioned. Why is that? Because he's the eternal one. He's the everlasting Son in the bosom of the Father. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so, in John's Gospel, we have the Lord Jesus as the Son of God, the eternal Word, the eternal Son. And because His deity is so prominent there, we have His miracles brought out in a remarkable way. We have those singular expressions, I am, I am the Good Shepherd, I am the, the Vine, and so on. But we find that the hours of darkness are not mentioned in John's Gospel. Why? It's because he's seen as the eternal Son of God there. Not as the dependent man that we have in Luke or as, the, as we have in the other Gospels as well, who became the sin bearer, but he's the Son who is in the bosom of the Father. I'd like to make just a comment on that expression, the bosom of the Father. I heard a brother say one time, he says, well, he left the bosom of the Father in order to come into this world. But that really is not the, the force of Scripture, the force of the expression, the bosom of the Father. It's true, the Lord left. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. But the expression, the bosom of the Father, is that eternal dwelling place of love, and He never left it when He came into this world. He was as much in the, in the bosom of the Father when He was here as He was before incarnation. And so we don't have the hours of darkness. There's no cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because in John, he's the eternal son. But it's only in John where we have his bloodshed. It had to be the death of an infinite sacrifice in order to atone for our sins. So I just mentioned those little things briefly to give us perhaps a little bit of an outline of of these things. Now we go to the book of Acts. Acts is really a book of transition. And Acts, of course, picks up from where Luke leaves off, right? At the Mount of Olives, they see the, the Lord going up. And then in Acts 1, we see the Lord, uh, the Lord ascending to heaven and says, Tarry at Jerusalem until you be endowed, with, with, uh, endowed with, with power from on high by the Spirit of God being sent down. And so in Acts, we have the work of the mighty work of the Spirit of God. And it is a transitional book that takes us from the Gospels into the light of the epistles. The book of Acts teaches us by pattern. It doesn't give us doctrine per se. So, for instance, you say, well, what, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? Okay, occasionally you may have in your local assembly, you might have what we speak of as a care meeting, where matters are, t- are taken up that pertain to the local assembly. What scriptural basis do we have for doing that? Is it just a good idea? Well, we have the pattern for that in Acts chapter 15, when the apostles and elders came together to consider a matter. Well, we don't have apostles today. We don't have elders in the strict sense of the word. But it gives us the print, the pattern of it, how they came together to discuss a matter. 
before it was brought before the whole assembly. God has an order in his assembly, just as we have order in, in our homes, order in business. God has an order too. And we have to learn God's order by reading the word. But the book of Acts teaches us by way of pattern. And it's a very important to see some of these uh, truths lived out. Even the, uh, the meetings, they, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. There needs to be ministry and fellowship this, and, and breaking of bread and in prayers. And so again, as I say, we have the pattern in the book of Acts. It takes us from the Mount of Olives and then halfway through the book and, and, and then Jerusalem and then it changes to Antioch. And I just, you know, let's go to Acts 13. I love this thought, but it really, I believe, shows a change in the character of God's work as Israel is set aside and God takes up in Christianity in a new way. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Five men that ministered and labored there in Antioch. I really enjoy this. Each man is known for something different. The first one is Barnabas. His name means son of consolation. His, what we know about him was his character. It's not a name he gave himself. It's a name his brethren gave him. They said, there is a brother that loves the saints, that cares. He's the son of consolation. He's a brother you like to see walk in. He's a, he's a brother that has sympathy. He was with the saints. He was one that was a help to Paul. So he was there. And then Simeon that was called Niger, black. So he was known and characterized by his physical appearance. But he was ministering right alongside Barnabas. And then Lucius of Cyrene. He was known from where he came from, from Cyrene. And then you have Manan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. He was known more for his upbringing. And finally, the last one, who was the most notable servants of them all eventually, is just tacked on and Saul. None of, his, none of his accomplishments that he would read about in, Ephesians, in uh, Philippians chapter 3. But this is the character of the church of God today. Of God is called out of the nations a people for himself. It's not heritage, it's God and his sovereignty pulling in one, pulling one there. And he would delight to take it and use it in this way. So then we come to... Um, then we come to Romans. And Romans through Hebrews. We won't have time to go through all of those. But I would say there's something I, I read as a young man that was helpful. I just pass it on. That Paul's ministry primarily has to do with the assembly. Peter's ministry has to do with the kingdom. And John has to do with the family. Now when it comes to Christian position, our individual blessing in Christ or it has to do with the assembly, we get it in Paul's ministry. Now, all of Paul's ministry is not contained in every epistle. What do I mean by that? And what's my point in saying it? Well, for instance, I say, well, the one body is not the subject of Romans. You say, I can point to chapter and verse, chapter 12, where Paul speaks of the one body in Romans. What do you mean? It's not the subject. Just because something is mentioned does not mean it's the subject. And so, as we read the different epistles, they each have a different character to it, and we would desire that we might learn what the character of the different books are. Romans, of course, is the unfolding and teaching of the gospel, the grace of God, relationship to sins, and deliverance from sin is the ruling principle in our life. And a practical exhortation, whether it's in relationship to the government or personal exercises or whatever it might be. But Paul has to do with the assembly. He is the only writer that mentions the one body of Christ. That was Ephesians 3. That was given to the Apostle Paul to make known that truth. Others had it revealed to them, but it was Paul that was given to teach it. And so if we're going to take up truth as to the one body, we're going to have to go to Paul's doctrine. And more than that, we're going to have to go to the epistles that teach that. Now, Peter, let's turn over to First um, Peter for a moment. And I realize we're going rapidly and we're going very top line, but I, I trust that these few comments might be of 
of help to clarify some things in our minds. Peter, an apostle, 1-1, and of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then he speaks to them, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now you remember that Paul was the apostle to the uncircumcision. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was an apostle to the Jews, to the circumcision. So when he writes his addresses, he's writing to Christian Jews. Again, it doesn't bring us into the full light of Paul's doctrine in the one body of Christ. And so we need to understand our remarks, based, uh, understand the passage uh, in reference to what, what the writer, um, what his line of things was. I'll just say this as an aside that might be helpful, that Paul, all the assemblies he wrote, were gent- wrote to were Gentile assemblies, but it does seem from what Peter writes in his epistles about Paul writing to them that Paul did write the book of Hebrews, but as such, as apostle of the Gentiles, his name is not mentioned in Hebrews. And further, of course, in Hebrews, it's Christ who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's almost like the Lord said, Paul, I know you have that great burden for, uh, for your brethren according to the flesh, so I'm going to let you write them, write epistle to them, but your name's not going to be on it. I take that that's Hebrews. Now, Peter was the apostle to the Jews, if we remember, we go back to Matthew 16. What did the Lord say to Peter? He says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Not the keys of heaven. We've heard all these little jokes and things about Peter being at the door of heaven with the key of heaven, with keys to heaven. It's the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That is, Peter opened up a sphere of blessing on the earth that would own the rule of the heavens. And he did that in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 with regard to the, the uh, Samaritans in chapter 10 in regard to the... Um, uh, and the, the Gentiles. So, sometimes we want to make things cut and dried, but we find that the apostle to the Gentiles was the, given the privilege of writing to the Jews, and the apostle to the Jews, Peter, was given to extend blessing to the Gentiles. So when we read Peter's ministry, we're not going to have a lot of the great Christian truths that Paul brings out. So when we come to chapter 1, for instance, of Second Peter, and he speaks to establish them in the present truth. What is it that Peter wanted to establish these Jews who are now Christians? What did he want to establish them in? He wanted to establish in the fact of that coming day of glory, that that wasn't lost, that that truth of his coming day, of his appearing, that it wasn't lost, that they'd be established as they went through trial and burden and hardship and suffering, they would be sustained by what Peter emphasizes the truth of the kingdom. There's a moral side of it, and Paul takes it up as well, but we don't have time for that. Now turn over to 1 John chapter 2, if you would. I know it's a bit warm, and it's hard to stay focused, and we're covering a lot of ground here. But in 1 John chapter 2, Verse 1 says, My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. Then, verse 12, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And then you see in chapter, verse 13, fathers, young men, and little children are addressed. So, we mentioned that John is more the family of God. And what characterizes the family of God is everyone in the family of God has eternal life. John's ministry brings before us eternal life as a present possession. In Paul, it's generally future, at the end, everlasting life. But in John, it's a present possession. And it's the family of God. Now, a couple verses I read there where I said little children, it's helpful to read Mr. Darby's translation because I think there's three times, maybe five times, three times at least, where he addresses my little children, it should be just my children. You say, why? Because he's addressing the whole family of God. My children, these things have I write, and you sin not. Not just the little children. He doesn't want any in the family of God to sin. All our sins are forgiven for his name's sake, regardless if you're a little children, a young man, or um, a father. And so as he addresses the family of God, we see that all have alike, they have eternal life. The Lord Jesus had it. It was true in him, and now it's true in us. Every believer has present possession of eternal life. But in the family of God, why that's in common, there's growth. 
There's little children. There's young men. And there's fathers. There's growth. And that's what his desire is, that there would be growth in the family of God. Two other short epistles I didn't mention. James. I think it's Mr. Faraday that makes the statement, William Faraday, that says, James is to the New Testament what Jonah is to the Old Testament. In all the Old Testament that's written to Israel, there's one little book that talks about blessing going out to Gentiles. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, that, that uh, so afflicted the people of God. But right there in the Old Testament, there's a story of blessing the Gentiles. Well, James, who, what assembly was that written to? Well, you say it wasn't written to any assembly. Well, what individual was it written to? It wasn't written to any individual. It was written, think of this, in the New Testament, it was written to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. And so when we come to the epistle of James, if we're going to look there for Paul's doctrine, we're certainly not going to find it. Because when we come to chapter 2 in the book of James, we find that if one comes into the assembly in splendid attire, really the thought is he comes into the synagogue. Now, the truth of God, it wasn't just the light was flipped on and everything came into view at once. There was a gradual bringing uh, out of Judaism into the light of Christianity. But James brings a very practical point of living faith. Faith without works is dead. And you can have faith without works. The devils believe and tremble. There's no living faith there. But faith uh, is living faith in James and it shows a distinction between those who are simply in an outward position and those that have real faith. i just say that again as an example of an epistle. If we're trying to force all of Paul's doctrine into the, book, into the epistle of James, we're just going to get ourselves confused. Jude has to do with apostasy. And then, of course, Revelation. The last, the last book, let's just read a few verses there to begin with. Or, or rather, at the beginning of the first chapter. 